As parents, we are merely seed planters. There is no need to be the sun and the water. This just might be my favorite quote of the season. Our guest today, Molly Yuska, founder of Project Giving Kids, is on a mission to help parents and families raise hashtag giving kids. She believes through intentional and consistent exposure to giving opportunities that nature will take its course. What do we mean by that? It's simple. If you're like Molly, you believe that your child has a gift, a talent, an ability to leave an impact on the world in some small or great way. As a parent, your role is to, dis- is to provide as many opportunities to discover and uncover what that skill, talent, or what I call their coolness factor is. When children, tweens, and high school students are tasked with serving soup at the soup kitchen, reading books to kindergartners or senior citizens, assisting at a dog shelter, or shopping for boots for a young boy who lives in inclement weather. Somewhere along the way, it clicks. Our natural inclination is to help, to solve, to figure out a better way. Project Giving Kids offers that very opportunity. When it comes to college admissions, many students falsely believe that community service is the path to getting admitted. I always say it's not the giving for giving's sake that matters. It is how you decide you want to leave an impact. For some, it is through giving of their time. For others, the best way to leave an impact is by giving of their talent. And yet for others, giving treasure is the best way for them to contribute. Whatever you decide, the point is this. Find an organization or a cause that gets you fired up. And then, like Molly says, let nature take its course. Oh, my word, this episode is definitely for parents who want, to va- who want validation that you are on the right track. Just when it feels like you're not sure if what you're doing to teach your child how to simply be good, kind, and empathetic, boom, here is your answer. Molly shares a tale from her own parenting book on just how much magic can happen when you simply plant the seeds for your child. Based out of Los Angeles, Boston, and the Bay Area, Project Giving Kids is designed to make it easier for families with young children to engage in more service activities. Using technology, Molly shares how giving is as easy as a click. Welcome to Destination University, episode number 47, Raising a Giving Kid, Intention and Impact. There is no guarantee for success, but there are ways to get closer to it when you do the right things. Who you surround yourself with is just as important as what you do. Finding the right people, the right classes, the right activities, and taking the right tests are all decisions that shape your future. Find out more today on Destination University with Dr. Cynthia Colon. Dr. Colon and her guests will give you the tips you need, whether you're a student, parent, or educator. Now... 
Here is your host, Dr. Cynthia Colon. Okay, so before we dive in, I have to announce this week's Double Scoop Star Student of the Week. His name is James, James Pierce. He is currently a junior at St. John Bosco. And when I met James, he was a sophomore and he sat in on the private consultation I had with his older brother. Later, later, his mom said this, James took everything in that you said and is making his game plan. So not long ago, I checked in with mom again and I asked what he was up to. And here's what she said. James is chugging away. He took the ACT in September and got a 34 and took it again in October and got a 36. Can you believe it? That's what she said. (laughs) Oh my goodness, that's so amazing. But even more impressive than the test score. James has been teaching piano to the neighborhood kids. And at first it was for free, but soon he was getting paid because families were inquiring. This is his coolness factor, by the way. At school, he's on the tennis team. He serves as the retreat leader. His volunteer efforts are focused on school on wheels, ability first, and he's a church, church lector. But when I sat and chat, chatted with James just for a bit, when I first met him, he got excited about jazz. And so we talked and explored different ways that he could really uh, use that as something that he continued to do as his thing, his coolness factor. You should know that James also serves on the student advisory board for Project Giving Kids. So I just couldn't think of a better person to highlight today. And wowza, James, you've definitely earned this double scoop star student of the week. Keep up the incredible work. Congratulations. Well, hello, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Cynthia Colon, TEDx speaker, college admission strategist, and author of the book, Be Committed, Get Admitted. Welcome to Destination University. We help college-bound teens create an action plan, become interesting applicants, and write essays that increase acceptance letters. We do all this through online or live group classes and private counseling. Consider me your step-by-step college admission coach and cheerleader. By being here today, you are helping to grow the community of informed families across the nation. Thank you for joining the movement. Well, hello there and welcome to you, Molly. How are you doing? I am great, Cynthia. Thank you so much for having me today. I, I love it. I love that you agreed to be here and we get to talk about this topic of community service and giving back and raising giving kids. So thank you so much for giving of your time and um, tell our listeners a little bit about where you are in the world. Uh, they know that I'm in California, but tell us what you are doing and what the weather is like where you are. Yes. Well, I'm actually in Florida, north side of Orlando, and it is still warm here. They, they tell us it's about to change, but we get to the end of the, the long summer and everybody waits eagerly. We've had a couple teaser days, but it is, it's, I think, still going to be 83 today and sunny in greater Orlando. Great for all the people visiting Disney, I suppose. Yes, definitely great for everybody who's visiting Disney. Well, just before we went live, I gave a, a formal you know, introduction of who you are and your organization, um, but it, I mean, in terms of briefly, but I want you to tell you, the listeners sort of the, the story behind how PGK got started. Why did you do this? Why was this important to you? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty good story. I think, you know, PTK is very much an outgrowth of, as I say, my work in the nonprofit sector, and just as importantly, if not more so, my work as a mom. Um, I have a graduate degree in nonprofit management from the Heller School at Brandeis, and at the time at which the idea for PGK came to me, I was doing consulting work in the sector uh, on a variety of different things, but was wrapping up a big project. I had three kids at the time. I now have four, um, and my youngest one was about one, um, and she was finally sleeping through the night, which for all the parents out there is one of those things you long for and wait for. And she was finally sleeping through the night and I wasn't. I was waking up in the middle of the night with these images in my mind of color wheels full of causes that kids could relate to and trying to to figure out what all of that was meaning as my head was spinning at two o'clock in the morning, sometimes for hours on end. But I think what was happening was we were starting to have experiences as a family with our oldest um, in terms of really starting the journey of service um, and volunteerism and wanting to expose him to a broader world around him. At the time, we lived right outside of Boston. And we, you know, my kids go to Catholic school. Um, we had, we were living, we had built a house at the end of a, of a cul-de-sac and our kids were having, I think, a really wonderful um, experience in their childhood, but realizing that children only know what they experience. And wanting them to have experiences that looked and felt very different than their own in order that they could really start to cultivate empathy and an understanding of what their, you know, life looks like relative to others and the interplay just between, you know, people and communities and how important it is that we have that awareness and that we're responsive, you know, to the needs of our community and to the people that are in it. And so we had started taking him to some of the local nonprofits in Boston, having some really meaningful experiences and very much watching him change, you know, watching him ask questions that I knew were in direct response to an experience that we had or something we had talked about. And I think, you know, as I, most parents would say, we learn probably more from our children um, than they learn from us, or at least I would say that in my instance. And watching him organically respond to the things that he was seeing and doing um, really showed me how powerful it is from a child development perspective to have these kinds of experiences when children are really little. Um, Because they're just like a sponge, you know, they take it right in and they assimilate that in a way that is very, very different than an adult who's sort of already developed their neural pathways and their ways of thinking about things. And I think, you know, my science experiment that I wasn't even, you know, intentionally doing was teaching me a lot as I was going along. And, you know, again, I was in the sector watching small to mid-sized nonprofits kind of struggle through what most small to mid-sized nonprofits and even all nonprofits to a certain extent struggle through, which is the need to constantly be building you know, their volunteer pipeline, their donor pipeline, something I now appreciate even more so from the firsthand experience of having started a nonprofit, but recognizing that the youth and family demographic is one that historically, I think the nonprofit sector has not always leveraged well. And it's a very powerful dual demographic that could be with them for potentially decades, literally to come. And I was also having all these experiences both personally, but also you know, listening to my friends talk about similar experiences of wanting to expose their children to, to other things and not knowing where they could go and 
Are there nonprofits that'll even take us as a as a family with young kids? And as somebody who had firsthand knowledge of the sector, you know, found from my own experience how hard it was to really identify those opportunities and those organizations. And so PGK really became about trying to bring those two groups together, the, the youth and families that were looking to have these meaningful experiences at a critical stage of child development, and the nonprofits that really could benefit from you know, engaging those people in the mission and the work of what they do um, and wanting to create a place, a marketplace, if you will, for them to come together and recognizing that both youth and families in this day and age pretty much live on their devices, having that, you know, place be online, um, easily accessible on phones and iPads and everything else was probably going to be the best way to do that. So we set out to really leverage technology to cultivate empathy in kids by giving them the opportunity to connect into age-appropriate service opportunities. So we started that in Boston. I was in Boston at that time and was there for 13 years. There was interest in LA, so we kind of spun LA up as a second city. And on the heels of that, there was some interest in the Bay Area. So for the last couple of years, we've been operating in all three of those regions, um, and then LA and Boston longer than that. Um, And really just trying to figure out what needs to happen from a technical perspective to make it useful for people, but also what needs to happen locally to really identify the kinds of organizations and opportunities that are of interest to the population that we serve. Well, I mean, what I really love about what you said is that you only know what you experience and sort of that um, taking your son, the older son, out and exposing, you were learning a ton yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And seeing that and seeing the questions that he was raising about, you know, things that, you know, probably that they don't talk about in school at a, such an early age or, or maybe they do, uh, but putting that together, right? We learn much better when we're doing and, we're, and yeah. when, when we're in action. And so creating those meaningful experiences. Um, now, of course, there's the very practical piece of, and I, I mean, until you said it, I didn't, I guess I didn't put that together. They're the nonprofits who have to fill their funnel of more and more volunteers as, as, you know, people go on, or I don't know, I guess, you know, young kids go on to college or whatever, they have to have more and more volunteers. So um, it sounds like you found a way for a family to be able to be a volunteer, right? Because they can't always volunteer when they're you know, young in terms of their age, but a family to volunteer with these nonprofits. Um, I know that you have, you said you had, you had three kids when you started this and now you have four no. and, <laughs> and I know you have uh, various ages that um, are at various points of being part of the college admission process. And our listeners, of course, are thinking about, we talk about college admissions all the time. So uh, describe for us, you know, what is your philosophy on what it means to raise? And I, lo- I want to use this in a hashtag giving kid. What does yeah. it mean to raise a, a giving kid? Because this part of the puzzle, community service, giving back, being altruistic, um, comes up as you know something that should be, air quotes, should be part of the college application. So share with us what you do. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. So I was raised by a college admission person. So I might have a slightly unique take, right, on on this whole on this whole topic, since it was very close to me and very much part of of the thought process um, as I was going through it myself. And it certainly is still with me as somebody who has now a freshman in high school and beginning to to think about where we are in that journey and where we will be in a couple more years when we're really you know in that home stretch. But I think you know, like most things, when it 
comes to parenting. I think raising a giving kid um, takes a lot of intentionality. Um, I, it's not something that I think just happens. Um, but it's possible, I think, for anybody for whom that intention is set. I think it also takes a lot of persistence and a lot of patience. Again, all things that any parent <laughs> knows only too well. Um, but I think, you know, it's one of those things that I think parents aren't sure how necessarily to make that happen. Because I think we have our own experiences in childhood, but often volunteerism is something, certainly for the generations before us, that I think really became a thing when we stepped into our own more adult stage of life, or at least I know there was a little bit of that in my childhood, but something that I really started to do more in earnest when I got to college and even beyond that. And I think, you know, we're realizing, and there's some amazing research out, you know, now that wasn't there when I was a child, just around neural development and how, how empathy can be cultivated in children and the kind of exposure that we're talking about and the impact that it can have on child development. But I think, you know, for me, it's recognizing that beautiful developmental window when you have young children and saying, this is something that we are going to do. We're going to prioritize prioritize this as a family because we want kids who are connected to their community, who understand the role that they can play in it, the ability, and I think this is a huge one for me, the ability for a child to recognize in their youth their impact on the world around them. And that can be impact, you know, small impact, just purely interpersonal between two people, but it can also be so much bigger than that. And really, you know, turning kids on to the idea that that impact can be a positive one, you know, every day and all the time, if we choose to walk through life with, again, that kind of intentionality. And I think kids are hardwired for empathy. And again, that res there's research that shows that, that proves that. Um, and I think, you know, I have the benefit of that 15-year-old freshman, but also a two-year-old in my house. Um, and the way that I watched the two-year-old respond emotionally and otherwise to what is going on with his 15-year-old brother or, you know, on the playground with other kids at school, you know, he, I see it every day and all the time still in him. A little bit harder in the 15-year-old some days, um, but I think it is really just a matter of exposing our children, consistently giving them opportunities to have that kind of exchange, you know, through service, um, and then just kind of letting nature, you know, do its thing. Because I really do say all the time, we're kind of seed planters, you know, we're about giving people exposure. And I always say, you don't have to be the sun and the water and all of that, because that stuff's already there. And I think we're just trying to create the conditions for the magic to take place. And I think early and often, like most things in life is, is the key really to raising a giving kid in the conversation, right? I think that's the other piece as a parent I've come to appreciate on a whole other level, which is just it's one thing to experience something. It's another thing to process that with them and how powerful just that follow-up dialogue can be to the way that they assimilate the experience into their thinking, into their being, um, and then how that carries forward. Because, you know, all the ingredients are there. I think it's just a matter of really, again, saying this is a priority as a family and this is how we're going to walk through that process. Oh my goodness. She just dropped so many golden nuggets. Those are big bombs. I, listeners, I hope you're taking notes. I didn't start. I should have said, I always forget, you know, get your pen and paper out and your uh, drink of choice. I'm having my green tea, as you know, as usual. But here's the thing. We are seed planters. Parents, we are seed planters. Adults, mentors, whoever you are, you're coaching. You just love kids. 
We are seed planters. There is no need to be the sun and the water. It's already there and let nature take its course. Ah, write that down. Love it. Um, intentionality, persistence, patient, impact, consistent opportunities. That's really the key. And to do it early. And I think that when, by the time people get to me, right? And they're like, what should we do? Um, what do we need to do? Uh, it's usually like junior year and you're like, well, you know, well, what does he like to do? What is she, ha- what has she enjoyed doing for the last, you know, you as a parent, what do you see? And sometimes they're at a loss on how to answer that question. But I completely believe what you said. It's already there. Let nature take its course. But again, you do have to expose and plant those seeds to kind of figure it out. And if you, I mean, it's a great thing when it happens, um, you know, by the time they're a freshman or a sophomore or even before. So awesome. Your 15 year old, does he have a, a thing that he loves that you've sort of picked up on, by the way? Well, you know, my 15-year-old is a lot like I was. I think he's he's one of those kids with, who would like to do everything if you let him. You know, he's he's an explorer. I think, you know, he's he's a great example. So it, can, can I indulge you in a quick story? Does that work? Yeah, of okay. course. So, um, so I will talk about one of the first experiences that we had as a family when we first exposed him to this whole thing of service. And there's a great organization in Boston called Cradles to Crayons, which provides essentials to children ages zero to 12. They're a partner of ours there, but they also operate in, in Philadelphia and in Chicago. And they've changed their model a little bit um, from when we were you know, dealing with, with our Michael, but we had taken him to their warehouse. And at the time, families could come in and and shop for a child that they were serving through one of the many social service agencies, shelters, whatever that they work with. And I took Michael through, we had a shopping cart and a piece of paper and, you know, Joey was age four, whatever. And here's what he needed for clothes and shoes and, you know, books and whatnot. And so you would go to each station and grab something that you thought Joey would like based upon, you know, his size and his age and whatever. And it was heading toward wintertime, which in Boston, unlike where you and I are, Cynthia, is brutal, right? So, um, you know, Joey needed some boots and we got to the station where the boots were and there weren't any in his size. And my son looked at me and he said, well, what happens now? I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, there aren't any. And I said, well, we can't fill that part of the order. And he goes, but what happens to Joey? And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, when it's snowing and he wants to go outside and play, what does he get boots someplace else? And I said, well, you know, Joey doesn't have a family that can probably get those for him. So they come, you know, whoever's getting things for him comes here. And so Joey may not have boots. And he said, but what does he do then? And I said, well, he probably either doesn't get to go outside in the snow or he has to go outside in his sneakers or whatever shoes he does have. And he just looked at me in this way that was, I mean, I think to this day, he would remember that story. And, you know, it was on the heels of stuff like that, that I would notice he would pick up on, you know, homeless people on the street. And he'd say, why did they have all their stuff with them? Is that their stuff? What do they do with their stuff? And, you know, all these tiny little things. And then, you know, segue to middle school. And um, for whatever reason, he was like, excited at the time about um, the Pope had just put out the encyclical about the environment. And our school, when we had moved from Boston to Florida, did not have a formal recycling program, which he could not wrap his head around because everybody in Boston had one and had for years. 
And he put this whole PowerPoint together and pitched the idea of an eco club to our principal and the entire faculty at the ripe old age of 11, walked into a faculty meeting, but had his slide deck, flipped through it. And I had helped a little bit, you know, just to like, you know, clean it up. But the whole thing was his. And then they got, they started an eco club. He ran it till he left at the end of eighth grade. Now he's a freshman in high school and, you know, when it was a major transition for him from a small, you know, Catholic school where he had been to this, you know, much, much larger Catholic high school. And he's been trying to find what his path is there. Um, and things are just set up very differently. So I, I'm excited to see, but he's, you know, a kid that jumps in and does anything everywhere. He told me what he'd like to go do this weekend to help with this Christmas um, for Central Florida kids who don't have anything, who are in shelters and whatever. And he's waiting to hear back about whether or not he can help run one of the shifts. And I think, you know, I see a kid who, you know, again, had that exposure very early. And depending upon the stage that he's in, I've seen it manifest in different ways. And I think that's the other piece of this that, you know, you touched on it a little bit, Cynthia, just in terms of what's their what's their thing and helping kids, I think really as a parent, right, that's our job is to help them figure out what their thing is. And that thing is different in different stages of development, which was part of why when we built the website, and the mobile app, you know, we did it around these cause areas that we thought kids could identify with, but we really did it with the intention of somebody helping to facilitate that, but the child really being able to look and say, hey, I want, I want to help animals, or I want to, you know, help fight hunger, or I want to aid the elderly, because kids respond to different things and at different times, and wanting to give them a vehicle for that self-exploration, because we do know that when kids have a meaningful service experience, they are much more inclined to do it again, whereas oh to them in high school, you need 10 more service hours in the next two weeks, they're going to go wherever they can get those service hours, not to the place that really is going to sit with them and be like, wow, that was amazing. That's starting to shape me as a person. Well, and that's the key to service, right? Like, are we doing it to check a box and fill those hours or are we doing something that is going to, you know, fill our soul and our, 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 our buckets, but what you call, what you say, what is their thing? And, and I talk about this listeners, you know, I say that's your coolness factor. What is your, coolness factor in terms of the application process, right? But figuring out what your thing is, what you love, what you, what your jam is, um, comes much sooner than that. And sometimes kids can pinpoint it and articulate it. Sometimes a parent can, or sometimes it just, you know, it takes some time to sort of figure out what that is. But, oh my goodness, 11 years old and making a presentation and saying, we have to do this. That's part of that thinking and seeing a problem What's Joey going to do without boots? That and, and, the, and the belief that he could actually affect it. And I think that's the part that is so inspiring to me about the work that we do is that when you see, I mean, that sort of boldness, I mean, I, I don't see that in a lot of adults a lot of times, I'll be honest. You know, we don't, we no longer believe that we can change this or change that. And I think part of the goal of what we're doing is trying to create a culture where kids really do walk through and recognize that that capacity lies within them and that they are not afraid to act. And I think it's very, I think there's a generation that we see coming through that I think if you inculcate that, if you really foster that sense of I'm capable and I have the ability and I'm empowered to do that, they will go and do it. 
Um, and I think that's very, very exciting Absolutely. when you feel this kind of affairs in, in our world today, the, the instilling that belief in children that they can be part of the solution to some of the stuff that we see and starting early in that quest to, to be the solution, I think is, is very exciting. Oh, so great. Oh, love it. Love it. Love this conversation. And I love that you're like a little nerdy like me. You love the like research and the neurons and like when I love when I'm super nerdy, actually. Yeah, I love that. I love it. So one of the questions I like to ask all of my guests is just because our listeners are interested in knowing what was your journey to college? What was your pathway? And you already mentioned that uh, you and I know you have a father who was in the in the industry college admission business. And what seeds were planted? Can you just share with our listeners what your high school um, path to college looked like? Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in the, in the little college town, right? Cause my dad worked for the university and it was, you know, it was largely, um, uh, you know, rural, I mean, outside of, um, Indianapolis about an hour and there were some industrial, you know, sort of opportunities in town and there was a university and then you had, you know, the, the farming community. Um, but it was a, it was a diverse place in that sense. And I think, but it was still a very small community and it was a very small high school, um, and I think I had all of like 132 people in my graduating class. Um, but I think what that opportunity or that environment afforded um, was the ability to really kind of just self-explore a lot of different things. I think I, the, the fall season, I think I, there, by the time I was a senior, I think I'd done like three or four different sports by the time I was done in this day and age that is utterly unheard of. You know, I did everything from diving until I had a diving accident to golf to, you know, whatever. I was a cheerleader throughout it all. Um, but, you know, I was in the choir and I was in theater productions and was in student government and kind of, you know, literally a little bit of everything. And that was part personality, but it was also part environment, right? That that was just a place where you could try all of that because you weren't competing with, you know, 600 other people every time you showed up for a tryout. Um, And I think, you know, in retrospect, that was very um, impactful to, again, my belief that like, oh, I can, I can do that. I could try that. Um, and that sort of low risk, high reward proposition of an environment where you can play around with that during that sort of time of discovering who you are as a person, um, I think is, was really, you know, much more meaningful than I realized at the time. Um, and then for me, because my dad was in the business and I had two siblings and I was, you know, sort of stuck in the middle of the two siblings and we were going to have a lot of years where people were in college together. Um, there was a great college association of which the university was part. And so for my brother and I, who were only one year apart in school, we were told, you will, you will look at these colleges. <laughs> these are the ones where tuition is going to come free um, because of the reciprocity. And this is your pool. Um, and so we really kind of looked within that pool. And um, ultimately, for me, I ended up, despite having sworn I would never, ever, ever, ever go there, having grown up in that town, um, ended up there anyway, because I got into an honors business program, and none of the other schools had what they offered, and it was just too good to turn down. And I got a couple of scholarships and other things to cover some of the other pieces that needed to be covered, um, and ended up, you know, joining that business program and have zero regret about going to the institution, but when you've lived in town, you kind of say like, no, I can't wait to go. I can't wait to go. And then, and then I stayed. <laughs> say the name for the college again for our listeners. Um, I was at, I was at DePaul with DePaul. a W, not an L. Right. I, 
So, okay. Thank you for saying that out loud because um, DePaul, uh, and I've talked about on my show, I've talked about DePaul in Chicago, which is different than DePaul. So I just want you all of us just to catch that. It's DePaul. And um, I have one of my best students and one of my favorite families is a student there now and is Amazing a Lily Scholar. Really yeah. wonderful school. Amazing institution. So you, went, so you were there and, and you said you stayed there, living there? No, so I didn't live at home. I live, you know, I had the full immersed collegiate experience. Um, and it was, I mean, it was great. I was part of the management fellows program. I did my semester abroad, which is, uh, well, actually abroad off campus. I was not abroad. I was domestic. I was outside of New York City, um, you know, which was, you know, part of that curriculum and part of that program. I ended up actually, which may come as no surprise after some of the other things I've disclosed, creating my own major. Because at a place like DePauw, if there isn't one that fits and you can come up with an interdisciplinary major that you can present and defend, you can get that approved, which I did. Because at the time, and I believe it's still the case as a liberal arts institution, the only business major they had was econ. And I had to take all these econ classes as a requirement for the business program, but I did not want to be an econ major because I had some other interests. And so anyway, make a long story short, I, I, I presented all of that, which is still a running joke that, you know, <laughs> if Molly can't find what she likes, she just makes it up. Um, so that was what I did. And it was it was a great experience also, again, to just sort of have the outlet and the opportunity to creatively craft something else that I felt like was more aligned with where I was at that time um, and to be in an environment where that was welcome. Uh, so I love that that's a running joke. If you, if you don't, if you don't find something you like, you're just going to make it up. And you know what? I cheers to you for, for doing <laughs> that. Now, I want to, I, you said that you tried a number of things that was part personality and part environment because there wasn't a lot of competition, you know, in their, in your small school, smallish school. And there's listeners who have, are across the country that have, you know, different size schools. But I do know that um, in high school, there are moments that we can feel inadequate or not enough or not, you know, we didn't make the team. And so, you, you second guess yourself. So did you have any moments like that in high school? I'm assuming we all do. So can you share with our listeners one or two of those moments where you didn't feel enough and how did you push through that? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say generally speaking, I, I think I said this to you, Cynthia, it wasn't, it wasn't my greatest chapter. Like it was definitely not uh, my favorite season. I think there was a lot, of, there were a lot of those moments. Uh, so I'm sort of pick one or two. I think, you know, we all hit that stage, I think, of insecurity in, in different times of our lives. Um, and when when we're in it, it feels it feels very overwhelming. And, you know, I think for me, there were some people who were consistently, you know, kind of present throughout that. I can I can speak of one English teacher that I had in high school. And in the midst of, of one of these periods of self-doubt, I got the only B I ever received in high school from this teacher. And I was mortified, mortified, total type A, you know, overachiever, whatever. And I was like, how, how can I get a B? I thought the sky had fallen. I thought the world would end. And I look back at that now, and she was just that kind of person who, I mean, she did me a huge favor in that moment, right? Because that B was coming someday from somewhere. And just that reinforcement on the other side of the B that I was totally fine. Like everything, like the world wasn't ending, I was going to be good. And, you know, I look back now and I think of her 
A, as a gift because she handed me something I thought was just, you know, going to append me and it didn't, which is an important life lesson. Um, But I also look at her as the person who literally like taught me every structural piece of grammar, you know, formatting. And like to this day, it was burned into my head, like burned into my head. And I thank her all the time for not only the gift and and the tenacity with which she taught her subject because she had such conviction around it, but also, you know, the fact that she gave me probably what I deserved, but she also gave me a gift in, in recognizing that I was capable of recovering from what seemed like a big deal in that moment. Because I think there's so much pressure and being the mother of a, of a high school freshman, I see that pressure even more intensely now than I felt it, you know, when I was, uh, a, a, was a teen. And I think they, they have this sense that, you know, one B or one missed, you know, team that you don't make or whatever is the end. And I think that's a really, that resiliency, that ability to push through that is a huge part of what every child needs to experience and needs to learn. Um, and I certainly, you know, had, had my moments too. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> like about five more dropped bombs right there. I hope you got, caught all of that. If you did not, I'm going to summarize for you what she just said. Here are the golden nuggets. First of all, my favorite thing you just said was that B was coming eventually. So parents, when you're listening right now and you're thinking, oh my goodness, um, she only got one B. Okay. First of all, yes, you know, there's a wide range of students and, and, and families listening, but what what I what I just heard Molly say is whatever that be is in your life in your teen's life that failure air quotes failure it's coming one day and that teacher Molly just said did me a huge favor because I'm going to tell you right now teenagers I think and adults too we remember much more from the things when we fail than the things that of, of which we succeed. So going through life, <clears throat> straight A's or perfect attendance or perfect whatever, there are very few lessons we'll learn because we're already good at them. But only when we push ourselves do we find, like Molly just said, she became a better writer. She, every lesson of how to write is always with her because of this one B and she thought the sky was going to fall. So as we are preparing soon for letters of acceptance or a whitelist or even letters of rejection for many families, it will be the first time the student has received a air quotes failure. And it's, it's, a, it's a gift, treat it as a gift, treat it as a surprise and, and know that there's something that you're supposed to learn from it. So easier said than done. Don't get me wrong. I definitely know it's easier said than done, but the sky did not fall after all, right, Molly? <laughs> it did not. It did not. And I think, you know, just to, to add one other statement to that, that I think as a, as a mother now trying to help my son process the, the quote, failures, right, um, is that each one of those is a chance for him to learn a little bit more about himself and what he's capable of and what he's best at and whatever. And I think the other thing that I experienced having had a father in the business um, was that I came to understand that there was no one place where I was going to succeed. You know, that success was a condition that I would choose and that that would be available to me at any number of different colleges and any number of different places in life. And that, you know, it was really, 
you know, my ability to frame my reality in that way that would assure me that whether or not I had gotten into DePause, you know, management fellows program or not, you know, I was just getting one step closer to wherever it was I was supposed to be, even if where I thought that was, you know, was not ultimately it. Um, and I think that kind of flexibility in thinking is something I know we're trying to instill in our kids that while they may have an idea of, of who they are and where they're headed, these course corrections are an important part to ultimately ending up on the right path, which quite frankly is, is almost impossible to know when you're a teenager. Oh my goodness. Without even me prompting you, you've offered our, our listeners uh, lots of truths and uh, the tale about your son is so powerful and it hopefully will resonate with, with our listeners. Um, and in that spirit of tips, tales, and truths, as my, my book is called Tips, Tales, and Truths. And by the way, listeners, chapter four in Tips, Tales, and Truths is all about creating your leadership plan and finding your coolness factor and figuring all that out, which is what we're, really, we're talking about today, is really in that chapter. So good examples, similar to what Molly has shared. So <clears throat> in that vein, I want you to give our parents, what is your best tip? You're a parent yourself, four children, God bless you. Uh, <laughs> so what is your best tip as a, that you can give our parents as raising a giving child or going through this process with this in mind, whatever it is? Well, I think, you know, I think for me, again, to, to your point of having four children who often I look at and I try to understand how they're all related, right? And how they all have come from the same two parents um, because they're all so uniquely different. I think the best piece of advice that I can offer and one I'm trying to live by myself, I'll be honest, is to really recognize the uniqueness of who they are and to teach them to lean into that. I think it's a generation of children who are constantly being bombarded with messages about what they're supposed to be or what society is telling them they are supposed to be or to look like or to whatever. Um, and it's really hard with social media and the you know consistency of the messaging for them as children to necessarily step away or separate themselves from that. Um, and that, you know, not only their success, but their happiness will come from figuring out who they truly are, not who somebody else is, not who, you know, somebody else thinks they should be, but truly why they are here and to set them on a course that helps them find that. And I think um, service can be a huge part of that, I'll be honest, because there is nothing quite like the response that one has when they've realized that they've impacted somebody else in a positive way. You know, I think in, in our world, in our business, right, you hear all the time, I got more from it than the person who received, you know, who was on the receiving end. And I think, I think that is true because I do believe personally in the goodness of all people that we're all woven together, that we're all here to support each other in different ways in different times. And that is, you know, both people we know and people we have yet to meet. And I think you know, trying to teach our children that the more that, again, they can lean into that truth and that identity of who they are and what they're supposed to do, the, the greater the chance that they will walk, you know, a path of, of success because they will feel confident. They will feel, you know, like they are taking steps toward um, that ultimate goal, whatever that may be for them individually. Oh, love it. Happiness is uh, one of those things that every parent wishes for their child, right? How can my child be happy? How can they be impactful? 
Um, how can they, how can what they're doing now lead to something that they're passionate about later so that they can lead to a career and all of these things. So raising a hashtag giving kid is um, just one step in, in that, right? I mean, I love what, I love everything that you just said. I love everything you said. Now, um, I want uh, our listeners to know how to find you and, and to say a little bit more specifically about what PGK um, can very practically do for a family, how they can um, find you and, and get connected to these three uh, cities that you're in. Yeah. So, I mean, we have a website, projectgivingkids.org, where you, where parents can log on. We are actually in the next couple of months going to be releasing a bunch of exciting new content. Uh, but right now you can go on, you can see we have over a hundred nonprofit partners in the three cities that we're operating in. Um, some of them operate nationally. Part of what we are looking to do is to grow the presence of other organizations um, in terms of making the, the platform ultimately useful to kids and families everywhere in America. Um, some of our projects are things that people could do regardless of geography. So there's a way to sort and filter through things where you can say, I'm in Boston or I'm in LA or I'm just looking for something that can be done anywhere and to find some experiences. We also, just for your audience in particular, um, just in the last couple of months have rolled out a new app called the Give Back app. And the idea of the app is really to provide teens a way to identify service opportunities and then track those. Um, I know my son still walks around, has to get the piece of paper from school, get it signed off on, and then he has to go log that somewhere else. But when it comes to, you know, doing those college applications, having all of those experiences in one place where you can look back and say, oh yeah, I, you know, volunteered with the SPCA and I did this, you know, because kids forget stuff. I mean, I, I forget stuff all the time myself as the mother of four, but, you know, having a place where they can store that information, access that information, reflect on those experiences, um, all of that. So that's a free app. We would love just for people to use it. We're still in that stage of wanting feedback on the app um, and how useful is it are, you know, our kids and teens using that in the way it was intended. So um, the, the website and the app, the are, are both there, both free for the taking. And, you know, as a nonprofit, um, our goal is really just to get people, you know, using these tools, more people connected to the work and the mission of what we do. Because uh, we want, you know, I say to people all the time, my goal is to, to have families start this journey early so that by the time they get to high school and that high school service requirement comes along, they've already got the hours, like they're already in the bank or they're already so involved that, you know, the target was 25 hours for the year and they've got 50 because that's just what they do. Um, and I've heard stories of kids who have hundreds of service hours, you know, by the time they hit graduation, because that's just the, the identity of who they have become. And um, so that's what, we're, that's what we're after. We're after creating a, a culture of, of kids and teens who just want to make the world a better place and know how to do that and trying to provide them with useful resources online to make that process easier. Right. And the best part is that those hours that they've banked are meaningful, right? That they've done something that's meaningful to them. Oh my gosh, this is great. So listeners, here's the real truth. Nothing is impossible with intentionality from our parents and continuing to plant seeds, consistently expose our children to the world. Our teens can in fact create an impact no matter their age. What I've learned from Molly today is that nurtured intentionality can lead to natural impact. Thank you so much, Molly, for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. If this episode has in any way fueled your confidence or helped build your dreams, please share this episode with three people in the next 30 minutes.
Okay. So before I let you go today, do you know the story of how I got admitted to college? Honestly, if it wasn't for my mother taking me to meet Mr. Vargas, I'm not sure where I'd be. He told me what to do, how to fill out my application, and encouraged me that I could go to college. Well, that's all I needed. Today, my only goal in life is to become the Mr. Raul Vargas for millions of students across the country, just like he was for thousands at USC. Why do I do this? Because I believe that public school students deserve private school advice. And trust me, I've seen a thing or two on the private side. So we are on a mission to give away 1 million eBooks to your families or people that you know. I want you to think about who you know that maybe is a PTA mover and shaker, a school district leader. Um, I want you to think about organization change makers. And then you want to really ask them to register for the 1 million free books giveaway. Or better yet, you can probably actually just go in and nominate them yourself or send them the link. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to the website, drcynthiacolon.com. Let me spell that for you. D-R-C-Y-N-T-H-I-A-C-O-L like Larry on like nancy.com forward slash the number one capital m like mary or million followed by the word free books that's drcynthiacolon.com forward forward slash one m free books okay it's easy to sign up and we will do the rest literally students and parents will have access to download either the English or the Spanish version or both of the book, Be Committed, Get Admitted, and it will be followed by a series of strategic tips and practical to-dos as they read the book. Imagine having the gift of a personal guide every step of the way. So again, go to the registration page yourself to nominate the school district or organization, and it's drcynthiacolon.com forward slash one capital M, free books. That's 1 million free books. There you go. Be sure to register today. I'll be sure to see you next week, same time, same place. Until then, wherever you are, may you have a happy and sunny day. Bye for now. Thank you so much for listening this week to Destination University. Be sure to join Dr. Cynthia Colon again and get one step closer to your success. 